Thomas Green here with Ethical Marketing Service. On the podcast today, we have Storm Cunningham. Storm, welcome. Hey, Thomas. Thanks for having me on your show. It is my pleasure. Would you like to take a moment and tell the audience a little bit about yourself and what you do? Well, I'm uh, based here in Washington, D.C. I'm executive director of Reconomics Institute, which uh, trains and certifies people to become revitalization and resilience facilitators. Uh, I'm an author of three books, uh, The Restoration Economy in 2002, Rewealth in 2008, that was from McGraw-Hill, and uh, Reconomics from last year. And I've uh, spent most of the last two decades running around the world doing talks and workshops on community revitalization, natural resource restoration, climate resilience. So just about everything I do starts with RE. Well, um, coming on to, uh, you, you mentioned the last couple of decades. In preparation for our conversation today, I watched the TEDx talk. It was very mm -hmm. good. Um, oh, I did you. notice it was 2010. So my mm. one of my questions is, um, what do you think of it now? And have your views changed at all since then? Uh, yeah, the, I, I still keep that uh, TEDx talk uh, posted fairly commonly, simply because TEDx was one of the few venues at that time that actually did a competent job of capturing both the speaker and the slides. Back in those days, most conferences only had one camera and you could get the speaker or the slides. If you tried to get both, uh, it was a washout because you had, the f-stops were different for each. You know, lighting was different. And so uh, when I do a talk, I'm very PowerPoint intensive. Virtually everything I say is based on what you're seeing on the screen because revitalization, restoration, these sorts of things are very uh, dramatic. You know, you're talking about taking a place from desolation or dysfunction to health and vibrance. And whether you're talking about an ecosystem or a part of a city, uh, that's the, the before and afters are, are very, uh, very important. So all the basic concepts that I introduced in that TEDx talk were based on the concepts of my first book, which came out 10 years before that. And I've been kind of surprised that, you know, I'm not an academic. Uh, that wasn't a, uh, an academic book, The Restoration Economy. But it was the first book to document the rise of all these different fields of restorative development. I, I broke them down into eight sectors, four of them on the natural side, like fisheries, watersheds, uh, agricultural uh, restoration, what's called uh, regenerative agriculture these days and ecosystem restoration, which focuses on increasing biodiversity. And then on the, nat the, the built side, it was catastrophe and war reconstruction, brownfields cleanup and redevelopment, infrastructure renewal, and historic or heritage restoration. And the strange thing is that 20 years later, uh, it, it's still, that's still the accepted taxonomy for the restoration economy. I've, I've never had any uh, uh, any flack from the academics, especially who I was expecting it from, saying, no, you missed this, or that's not right, or, you know, so um, I guess I lucked out. I don't think it's that. I think it's um, it's difficult to uh, to criticize someone who's doing the work that you're doing. So um... well, see, there, there I lucked out. I got into a field that uh, nobody <laughs> wanted to criticize. And and that, that actually is is true because here in the States, uh, I'm sure you've heard that uh, 
we're a little dysfunctional these days politically <laughs> and uh, with the conservatives not talking to the uh, progressives and vice versa. And uh, even it's no longer just a matter of not liking each other. You know, we've become the enemy of each other, which is a very different uh, scenario. Uh, the interesting thing is all this re-stuff, regeneration, redevelopment, revitalization, reuse, reconnecting, repurposing, uh, it's, it's all very nonpartisan. Uh, if you look at the policies and programs in the federal government that have continued over the past 20 years, almost all of them have to do with re-something. Mm. Uh, it doesn't really matter whether you're progressive or conservative. Everybody likes to bring ugly or dysfunctional or contaminated, uh, uh, you know, useless places back to life, back to functionality, back to productivity. It's pretty much a universal desire. Well, um, I was going to say, because you've got sort of people that you um, would, who you're positioned to. So one of those is... Um, politicians one is charities and then i think lastly you say businesses i mean typically i have a, a business audience what is a way that businesses um can revitalize um and what what do you recommend for businesses in terms of you know here's a simple way that you can get started yeah well businesses normally get involved in this field from one of two angles either they're doing it as a a good citizen, you know, they're, you know, they're going about their normal business, whatever that might be, but on the side, they might be providing employees for volunteer work or might be helping the community in, in some way, or for instance, locating on the high street rather than in the sprawl areas uh, in order to reuse an old building, you know, things that are going to contribute to revitalization. On the other hand, you've got the businesses that actually want to make money doing this work. They get into the field of community regeneration. They get into the field of natural resource restoration. And there's a ton of money to be made at doing that. Uh, this, it's very uh, le legitimately uh, the fastest growing and most important part of our economy. Uh, the trouble is nobody's really measuring it properly. We, our government reports focus on all the new development, you know, the new buildings, you know, the new land developments, that sort of thing. And they focus on maintenance and conservation, which is in the middle of the life cycle. But all the end of life cycle stuff, all the re stuff uh, gets in ignored. You don't get government reports on all the restorative development and regeneration, revitalization that's going on. So it's uh, a lot of businesses are missing out on the opportunity just because they don't see accurate numbers as to how large this is and how fast growing it is. That is actually one of my questions because I've heard you say um, that you can make a full-time living from revitalization. Um, and I think one of your examples was a business that turned over $12 million a year or something like that. So what's a typical example of someone making a living from revitalization? Well, I think the one you're probably referring to is the one I featured in that TEDx talk. Um, and uh, he, he's, uh, the company Biohabitats, I think at the time I did that talk, they were doing about $12 million a year. Now they're doing about three times that much. And uh, that fellow um, you know, came straight out of landscape, landscape architecture school. And he saw the fact that rather than just doing ordinary landscape work, that the growth was in restoring landscapes and restoring streams and wetlands in particular, which back when he got started, 
was a very, very uh, new field. And he had the, uh, he, he was aware enough to see at the growth potential. And he, that's a very small business. I mean, you've got individual, you know, he's just focusing on natural you know, nature restoration, but you've got uh, ecological restoration projects that are in the billions of dollars, you know, like Everglades restoration in Florida is something like $16 billion now. That's just one project. So yeah, it's, it's a huge area, but it's, it's so multifaceted. You've got companies that are just focusing on buying derelict buildings and restoring them, you know, historic buildings and reusing them. Uh, other ones that specialize in in decontaminating old industrial land and and reusing it either for cleaner industries or for residential. I know you've got a in the UK you've got a big movement these days to do brownfield uh, residential development to help protect the countryside from being sprawled to death. Uh, all of these, you know, at the largest of them is infrastructure renewal. And if you look at infrastructure in terms of all the stuff that connects the world and allows for flows, you know, flows of traffic, flows of water, flows of power, flows of information, flows of people. Uh, you know, it's, you know, that's uh, trillions of dollars in itself. And we've got a multi-trillion dollar backlog of infrastructure renewal. And every one of these is a business opportunity. I see some of what you referred to as like a refurbishment. So taking old buildings and refurbishing it, does that... Mm -hmm. Is that an incorrect uh, no, that's, definition? Yeah, that's, there? that's absolutely one of, one of the many areas, but uh, and it's not even one of the larger areas, even though it's it's one of the more commonly known because older buildings are so visible. Uh, people love them in many cases, uh, and they certainly love seeing them be brought back to life and beauty. But it's it's well known uh, primarily because they're in people's face all the time. What you don't see are the more invisible forms of restoration, such as fishery restoration. And fisheries comprise 10% of the entire global economy. Hmm. Interesting. I've seen um, planting trees um, recently as a, um, an example of revitalization. Um, and there's, there's been some quite influential people who have gotten behind the concept of planting trees. And there's also, also a search engine, I'm not sure if you've heard of it, Ecosia, um, and they've, um, they basically give, I think it's 80% of their uh, profits to um, non, um, not-for-profit um, organizations, and they claim to have planted 110 million trees since they started. Um, any thoughts on that particular concept, that example? Yeah, the, there are all kinds of uh, tree planting organizations, even companies down in Australia. There's one called, uh, uh, what is it, Greenfleet, uh, that's been planting trees for probably 15 years now. Primarily, they're, they're originally a carbon credit organization. So that was their whole business model is that they would uh, sell carbon credits for their reforestation activities. But they very quickly realized that they didn't have to limit themselves to that agenda. So now they're promoting the wildlife and biodiversity uh, restoration, you know, endangered species, uh, oftentimes even locally extinct species that are now being bought, brought back to the various states in Australia. Uh, as a result of this new habitat they're creating. So it's, you know, tree planting's one of those things like, like any aspect of development or even restorative development. 
you can do it well or you can do it badly. You know, there are people who do restoration badly. There are people who clean up brownfields, uh, but don't clean them up very well. So there's too much contamination left in the ground. Uh, you've got tr tree planting examples all over the world, including the Chinese. I mean, Chinese have planted literally billions of trees by hand. And in certain, yeah, in most of it, uh, in order to try to hold back the expansion of the Gobi Desert, uh, which was that whole region was desertified because they chopped down all their trees. But they've, in the early days anyway, they were doing a very, very bad job of it. And over 80% of the trees they were planting were, were dying. And even now, uh, there are many of these massive tree planting uh, efforts, especially in Africa, where you've probably seen some of the headlines in the last few years about countries that have committed to planting a billion trees or two billion trees. But you look at their efforts, and in many cases, uh, more than half of the trees are dead just a year later, because in many cases, it's politically motivated. You know, they want the activity, they want the headlines, but they're not committing the funds that are necessary to actually maintain and water these trees. Other ones use the wrong trees. You know, they plant commercially valuable trees, but they're not native, so they're not really helping the, uh, uh, the local ecology, the biodiversity in any way. Uh, I've seen one, you know, mangrove restoration is one of the most important, maybe the most important form of reforestation in the world today. And I've seen places that were so uh, hungry and so laser, laser focused on getting more mangroves that instead of just planting them in places where they had been destroyed and, you know, bringing these dead spots back to life, like old shrimp farms, they were actually going into healthy ecosystems like uh, turtle grass beds and ripping up the, or not necessarily ripping up the turtle grass, but planting mangroves there, which in a few years are going to shade the turtle grass and kill it off and wipe out a valuable ecosystem. So yeah, you can, you can do all kinds of good things badly. <laughs> well, um, it, it's fun. What I picked up on there on your example about the planting of trees is um, you may have planted it, but um, it doesn't necessarily mean that you get a tree out of it. You've just pledged to plant it, which I thought interesting on the wording there. But um, have you given any thought to or um, maybe had discussions around the concept of, um, in business anyway, the self-interest side of um, having a cause, this, this type of thing? So if someone is, let's say, you know, this doesn't really appeal to me or whatever about, about doing something for someone else, there is I think a, a self-interest from saying as a company, this is what our cause is and this is what we support. Um, and that can um, have a beneficial impact on your company because others can see that you're supporting a good cause. Have you had any conversations like that? Yeah, um, I'm not a huge fan of all these grand uh, mission statements and visions that companies come up with, because in many cases, they're very self-serving, they're very uh, uh, superficial. Uh, the, to me, it's much more valuable to actually be in a business that's making the world better. Mm. Uh, and if the way you make your money is leaving cities healthier or nature healthier or natural resources more productive, who needs a fancy vision statement? You know, you're, the work itself speaks for itself. You know, mm -hmm. you're, you're actually having the impact. Um, 
and you don't have to focus so much on the words. Do you think that um, picking a cause, for lack of a better term, is subjective, or do you think, like, as as a typical business, um, like a service-based business, for example, who's not currently doing something, do you think that there's an easy way for them to get started, or do you think it's subjective based on what your preferences are? Well, it, it, if you're in a business that doesn't inherently restore or revitalize the world some in some way, then sure, you know, add some values, add some principles to your culture that will help make the business uh if not less destructive, then then at least more socially friendly in some way, more inclusive, you know. Uh, but if you're actually going to be in the business of making the world a better place, you're going to earn your, your living from it, then uh, uh, it's... It's it's more important than just just to uh, be as successful as possible. Mm. So actually, spend time full time um, in that particular endeavor. Yeah, that's what we do at Reconomics Institute with individuals primarily, uh, consultants, lawyers, architects, engineers, planners, people who want to start specializing uh, in helping communities come back to life. And there's there's a tremendous uh, failure rate, uh, probably about 90% in revitalization, regeneration, resilience initiatives around the world. Uh, a lot of them are spending a lot of money. They're doing good projects, but they're not getting that end result, that revitalization or resilience that they, they were really shooting for. And the problem is they're just focused on projects. They're just doing individual actions. But in order to produce an end result, you need a process. Uh, you, know, you talk to any business person in the world whose company is successful, and they've got a process for producing whatever product or service it is that, that they make their money from. But you talk to community leaders and ask them, well, what's your process for producing revitalization or your process for producing resilience? And they'll just look at you blankly saying, what do you mean process? You can't have a process for that. You just do a lot of good stuff and hope for the best. And that's really, really is how they go about, uh, you know, improving the future of their community is hoping for the best, just do a lot of good stuff. And uh, that's not very responsible. So what we teach at Reconomics Institute, we actually certify people as revitalization and resilience facilitators. And the primary thing they bring to the table is knowledge of a reliable what we call a minimum viable process. You have to have at least this in place if your community is going to successfully revitalize or become more resilient. You can add to it, but you can't take away. There's a certain minimal process that is needed. I'm interested in how you got into this particular field, um, what your motivations are, and then also um, Kind of uh, coming back to the TEDx talk for a moment, um, whether or not you feel like you've, you know, are you happy with what you've achieved in the last decade of, and, you know, what your, what your outcomes are? It's kind of something you, you touched on a moment ago, which was um, are people actually um, achieving a particular outcome? Have you got any um, favorite, should we say, examples of things that have happened um, and also what your motivations well, my favorite success stories are the ones that can, that actually change the 
overall landscape of, of this movement that actually advance uh, the restorative development trend in some way. For instance, back about, I think I mentioned this in the TEDx talk, back about 15 years ago, I worked with the governor of Montana, uh, Brian Schweitzer, to create a Montana Restoration Economy Initiative. And the most important thing to come out of that was about three years later, they actually produced a report that documented the return on investment that Montana got from their investments in restoring their rivers, their watersheds, cleaning up their brownfields. And it was the very first time in history <laughs> that anybody had actually documented an ROI for restorative development. And that was important because now everybody's doing it. You can see you know, like uh, in, the, in the US, uh, we've got the Brownfields program from the US Environmental Protection Agency, and they've documented uh, a minimum uh, of about, uh, four, well, let's see, it's, uh, it's about an eight to one return on investment for every dollar, uh, public dollar that's put into Brownfields assessment and cleanup it attracts eight private dollars for the redevelopment and revitalization of that land. And other cities and states have documented their own, uh, and some are much more effective. For instance, Minnesota uh, has documented a 44 to one ROI. For every public dollar that the state of Minnesota puts into brownfields, it attracts 44 private dollars for community revitalization. And that, that's, the, that's really important stuff because when people see the ROI, it's so much easier for them to dedicate funds to restoring the planet in some way or restoring their local community. And you're, um, the reason why you're doing what you're doing, your motivations? Oh, it's purely selfish. Uh, you, I get a tremendous kick out of seeing anything that's unhealthy come back to life. Uh, my wife is a doctor of oriental medicine, so she gets the same kick. In fact, her practice is called wellness restoration. And uh, we, uh, we just, you know, love seeing health bloom, you know, where there was death and destruction. And uh, it's, it's just so personally satisfying. It's almost virtually ecstatic. And uh, so, yeah, it's a very selfish uh, sort of thing. <laughs> That's kind of the best version of selfish I've ever heard. <laughs> so, um, yeah, have you got any... Um... What, what are people's misconceptions about what you do? Um, well, probably the biggest mis misconception is that I work for a living uh, or, or that I really do anything useful. Uh, the fact is that all I really do is talk about and write about people who are doing this sort of work. Uh, you know, I've, I've occasionally gotten involved hands-on in a few environmental restoration uh, projects. In fact, I got my start uh, helping to restore coral reefs down in Jamaica. This is what got me started in this whole field of restorative development and eventually led to my first book. Um, but, uh, you know, for the most part, all I do is write, write about and talk about people who are doing restorative development. I don't actually hands-on do any of this stuff. So that's, that's the biggest mis misconception. Have you done any um, tracking of the kind of influence you had as a result of, um, you know, your work? Well, that, that's probably the most frustrating part of my work is that I normally get involved in the very beginning. I help people or communities uh, establish a process. I help them, you know, create a, an ongoing program, uh, 
you know, create a shared vision uh, of their future, help them create strategies, uh, help them create partnerships. But, you know, it, it usually ends right about there. And it, it often takes years before that work turns into actual projects. And by that time, I'm usually not involved anymore because I don't do projects. I'm, I'm not an architect. I'm not a planner. I'm not an engineer. Uh, like I said, I don't do that kind of useful hands-on uh, work. So uh, I, I've done it. I've done these uh, talks and workshops, you know, in hundreds of cities all over the world. Uh, but as a result, I kind of lose track of them. You know, I'm always working somewhere new and kind of lose track of what's been happening uh, in the uh, places I used to work in. And a lot of times you, know, you get uh, the old problem of changes of political administration where no matter how good the previous administration's projects might be, the new administration, especially if it's of a different political party, wants to just kill it for fear that uh, if it succeeds, it'll uh, help that party get back into power again. Yeah, that's um, unfortunate. Anything that you're particularly proud of? <sighs> well, um, I guess uh, I'm just proud that, uh, yeah, and that's not really a, a word I would use, but um, to pick up on your theme, uh, let's, let's say I'm, I'm glad I, that I found a way to earn a living that not only brings me tremendous personal satisfaction, uh, but uh, that I can go out sometime in the future, I can leave this world uh, feeling that uh, it's a better place as a result of my existence. Well, I would say I'd be pretty proud of that. <laughs> and uh, Storm, what are your goals? Uh, my goal is to keep on doing this for at least another 30 years. <laughs> well, um, I'd say that's a pretty good goal. That's my opinion anyway. Oh, is, there, is there something that uh, you feel would be of value to the audience that I haven't asked you about today? Uh, well, you could ask them what book they should be reading. <laughs> um, Got to be self-serving to some degree. Uh, so, yeah, if somebody doesn't want to actually go to Reconomics.org and become a certified revitalization and resilience facilitator, at least buy the book. Uh, you know, it's on Amazon uh, all over the world, Reconomics, The Path to Resilient Prosperity. And all the secrets are really in there. And so even if you only want to do this, you know, kind of part time as a local volunteer or show up at your city council meetings and uh, offer something that will help them succeed, then uh, that book will give you the, uh, uh, the knowledge that you need to actually help your community come back to life. Okay. Storm, where is the best place for people to find you? And also, what other books should they be reading? Um, really depends on what, what the focus needs to be. I mean, there are thousands of books on various kinds of restorative development. That was uh, a joke for you to, uh, to, to put some of your other, other books. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. My books, you know, the restoration economy and rewealth, you know, they all focus on kind of the, the grand scheme of the overall goal and, you know, how to put together all these different forms of restorative development. Uh, but uh, if you want to dive into the details, uh, 
you know, there are literally thousands of books out there about how to restore fisheries, ecosystems, watersheds, buildings, brownfields, uh, that sort of thing. Um, but if you just want to find a link to go to all of these different uh, sites, the books, the organizations, uh, just go to stormcunningham.com. That's my public speaking site. And the links to all of these activities are, are on that one site. Brilliant. Well, um, keep up the, the good selfish work. And mm -hmm. um, thank you very much for your time. Oh, thank you, Thomas. I enjoyed it.